Chapter Eight of Fast in the Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fast in the Ice by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Eight. The Cause of Icebergs. Fox Chase. A Bear. One day, long after the walrus hunt just described, Joe Davis stood on the deck of the Hope, leaning over the side and looking out to sea, at least in the direction of the sea, for although midday it was so dark that he could not see very far in any direction, Joe was conversing with Mr. Dicey on the appearance of things around him. Do you know, Mr. Dicey, said he, what it is as causes them their icebergs? Mr. Dicey looked very grave and wise for a few seconds without answering. Then he said in a rather solemn tone, "'Well, Davies, to tell you the truth, I don't know.' Now, as this question is one of considerable interest, I shall endeavour to answer it for the benefit of the reader. The whole of the interior of Greenland is covered with ice and snow. This snowy covering does not resemble that soft snow which falls on our own hills. It is hard and never melts entirely away. The snow there is in some places a thousand feet thick. It covers all the hilltops and fills up all the valleys, so that the country may be said to be a buried land. Since the world began, perhaps, snow has been falling on it every winter, but the summers there have been so short that they could not melt away the snow of one winter before that of another came and covered it up and pressed it down. Thus, for ages, the snow of one year has been added to that which was left of the preceding, and the pressure has been so great that the masses have been squeezed nearly as hard as pure ice. The ice that has been formed in this way is called glacier, and the glaciers of Greenland cover, as I have said, the whole country, so that it can never be cultivated or inhabited by man unless the climate change. There are glaciers of this kind in many other parts of the world. We have them in Switzerland and in Norway, but not on nearly so large a scale as in Greenland. Now, although this glacier ice is clear and hard, it is not quite so solid as pure ice, and when it is pushed down into the valleys by the increasing masses above it, actually flows. But this flowing motion cannot be seen. It is like the motion of the hour hand of a watch. Which cannot be perceived, however closely it may be looked at. You might go to one of the valleys of Greenland and gaze at a glacier for days together, but you would see no motion whatever. All would appear solid, frozen up, and still. But notice a block of stone lying on the surface of the glacier, and go back many months after, and you will find the stone lying a little further down the valley than when you first saw it. Thus glaciers are formed, and thus they slowly move. But what has all this to do with icebergs? We shall see. As the great glaciers of the north then are continually moving down the valleys, of course their ends are pushed into the sea. These ends or tongues are often hundreds of feet thick. In some places they present a clear, glittering wall to the sea of several hundreds of feet in height, with perhaps as much again. Lost to view down in the deep water, as the extremities of these tongues are shoved further and further out, they chip off and float away. These chips are icebergs. I have already said that icebergs are sometimes miles in extent, like islands, 
that they sink seven or eight hundred feet below the surface, while their tops rise more than a hundred feet above it, like mountains. If these, then, are the chips of the Greenland glaciers, what must the old blocks be? Many a long and animated discussion the sailors had that winter in the cabin of the Hope on the subject of ice and icebergs. When the dark nights drew on, little or nothing could be done outside by our voyagers, and when the ice everywhere closed up, all the animals forsook them except polar bears, so that they ran short of fresh provisions. As months of dreary darkness passed away, the scurvy, that terrible disease, began to show itself among the men. Their bodies became less able to withstand the cold, and it was difficult for them at last to keep up their spirits but they fought against the troubles bravely. Captain Harvey knew well that when a man's spirits go, he is not worth much. He therefore did his utmost to cheer and enliven those around him. One day, for instance, he went on deck to breathe a mouthful of fresh air. It was about eleven in the forenoon, and the moon was shining brightly in the clear sky. The stars, too, and the aurora borealis, helped to make up for the total absence of the sun. The cold air cut like a knife against his face when he issued from the hatchway, and the cold nose of one of the dogs immediately touched his hand, as the animal gambled around him with delight, for the extreme severity of the weather began to tell on the poor dogs, and made them draw more lovingly to their human companions. "'Ho! Hallo!' shouted the captain down the hatchway. A fox chase! A fox chase! Tumble up, all hands! The men were sitting at the time in a very dull and silent mood. They were much cast down, for as it has been cloudy weather for some weeks past, thick darkness had covered them night and day, so that they could not tell the one from the other, except by the help of their watches, which were kept carefully going. Their journals also were written up daily, otherwise they must certainly have got confused in their time altogether. In consequence of this darkness, the men were confined almost entirely to the cabin for a time. Those who had scurvy got worse, those who were well became gloomy. Even Pepper, who was a tremendous joker, held his tongue, and Joe Davis, who was a great singer, became silent. Jim Crofts was in his bunk, down with the scurvy, and stout Sam Baker, who was a capital teller of stories, could not pluck up spirits enough to open his mouth. In fact, as Mr. Dicey said, they all had most horrible fit of the blues. The captain and the officers were in better health and spirits than the men, though they all fared alike at the same table, and did the same kind of work, whatever that might chance to be. The officers, however, were constantly exerting themselves to cheer the men, and I have no doubt that this very effort of theirs was the means of doing good to themselves. He that watereth others shall be watered, says the word of God. I take this to mean that he who does good to others shall get good to himself. So it certainly was with the officers of the hope. When the captain's shout reached the cabin, Jim Crofts had just said, I'll tell you what it is, messmates, if this here state of things goes on much longer, I'll go out on the floes, walk up to the first polar bear I meet, and ask him to take his supper off me. There was no laugh at this, but Pepper remarked in a quiet way 
that he needn't put himself to so much trouble, for he was such a pale-faced, disagreeable-looking object that no bear would eat him unless it was starving. Well, then, I'll offer myself to a starving bear, to one that's a most dead with hunger, retorted Jim gloomily. What's that the captain is singing out? said Davy Butts, who was mending a pair of canvas shoes. The men roused themselves at once, for the hope of anything new turning up excited them. Hallo! Ho! roared the captain again, in a voice that might have started a dead walrus. Tumble up there! A fox chase! I'll give my second best fur coat to the man that catches Foxy. In one instant the whole crew were scrambling up the ladder. Even Jim Crofts, who was really ill, rolled out of his bunk and staggered on deck, saying he would have a go after Foxy if she should die for it. The game of fox is simple. One man is chosen to be the fox. He runs off and the rest follow. They are bound to go wherever the fox leads. In this case it was arranged that the fox should run round the deck until he should be caught. Then the men who caught him should become fox and continue running on with all the rest following until he in turn should be caught and so on until the one who could run longest and fastest should break down all the rest. The warm fur coat was a prize worth running for in such a cold climate, so the game began with spirit. Young Gregory offered to be fox first, and away they went with a yell. Mr. Mansell was a little lame and soon gave in. Mr. Dicey fell at the second round and was unable to recover distance. Gregory would certainly have gained the coat, for he was strong and had been a crack racer at school. But he did not want the coat, so he allowed Sam Baker to catch him. Sam held on like a deer for a few minutes, and one after another the man dropped off as they were blown. Jim Crofts, poor fellow, made a gallant burst, but his limbs refused to help his spirit. He fell and was assisted below by the captain and replaced in his bunk, where, however, he felt the benefits of his efforts. The race was now kept up by Sam Baker, Joe Davis, and Butts. These three were struggling on and panting loudly while their comrades danced about, clapped their mittened hands, and shouted, Now then, Sam, go in and win, Joe, Butts forever, and such like encouraging cries. To the surprise of everyone, Davy Butts came off the winner, and for many a day after that enjoyed the warm coat which he said his long legs had gained for him. This effort of the captain to cheer the men was very successful, so he resolved to follow it up with an attempt at private theatricals. Accordingly, this thing was proposed and heartily agreed to. Next day everyone was busy making preparations. Tom Gregory agreed to write a short play. Sam Baker, being the healthiest man on board, was willing to act the part of an invalid old lady, and Jim Crofts consented to become a gay young doctor for that occasion. Meanwhile the captain arranged a piece of real work, for he felt that the attempt to keep up the spirits alone would not do. They had been for a long time living on salt provisions. Nothing could restore the crew but fresh meat. Yet fresh meat was not to be had. The walrus and deer were all gone, and although foxes and bears were still around them, they had failed in all their attempts to shoot or trap any of these animals. A visit to the Eskimo camp, therefore, if such a camp really existed, became necessary. So, 
While the theatricals were in preparation, a small sledge was rigged up. Gregory and Sam Baker were chosen to go with him. The dogs were harnessed, and, on a fine, starry forenoon, away they went to the south at full gallop, with three hearty cheers from the crew of the brig, who were left in charge of the first mate. The journey thus undertaken was one full of risk. It was not known how far distant the natives might be, or when they were likely to be found. The weather was intensely cold. Only a small quantity of preserved meat could be taken. For the rest they trusted, in some measure, to their guns. But the captain's great hope was to reach the Eskimo village in a day or two at the furthest. If he should fail to do so, the prospect of himself and the crew surviving the remainder of the long winter was, he felt, very gloomy indeed. Success attended this expedition at the very beginning. They had only been eight hours out when they met a bear sitting on its haunches behind a hummock. "'Hallo! Look out!' cried Gregory, on catching sight of him. "'Fire, lads!' said the captain. "'I'm not quite ready.' Gregory fired, and the bear staggered. Baker then fired, and it fell. This was a blessing which filled their hearts so full of thankfulness that they actually shook hands with each other, and then gave vent to three hearty cheers. Their next thoughts were given to their comrades in the hope. "'You and Baker will camp here, Tom,' said the captain, "'and I will return to the brig with a sledge-load of the meat. When I put it aboard, I'll come straight back to you. We'll keep a ham for ourselves, of course. Now then,' to work. To work the three men went. A hind leg of the bear was cut off. The rest was lashed firmly on the sledge, and the dogs enjoyed a feed while this was being done. Then the captain cracked his whip. Good-bye, lads. Good-bye, captain. And away he and the dogs and sledge went, and were soon lost to view among the hummocks of the frozen sea. End of chapter 8